week in the markets, U.S. tech shares continued their vertical ascent, ending Friday's session at all-time record highs. Well, welcome back, everyone. Just great to be with you. Another GoldSeek.com Radio Season 14, Episode 694, with your host, Chris Waltzek. Well, by now, my regular listeners know for about the last six months, my side project has involved the search for extraterrestrial life through radio wave sources in deep space. And we've all seen the movies. We all know, seen the images of the huge radio telescopes all around the world. This is a very well-established science with over 60 years of phenomenal results. Well, this week, we may have made our biggest breakthrough yet. And the timing couldn't have been any better. We're just honored to welcome as a featured guest this week, Dr. Seth Shostek from SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence in my signalhunters.net segment. And we now own that domain, by the way. So be sure, please, and visit and bookmark our site, signalhunters.net. Well, Dr. Seth Shostek, he's the lead astronomer and astrophysicist at SETI. And we discuss the need for NASA probes all throughout our solar system for signs of life. And we believe we've found signs of life on at least one, two, three, four or five planets within this solar system already. I've got thousands, something somewhere near 2,000 images. If anyone's interested, come to signalhunters.net. Also discuss some of our findings from the FRB 121102. That's fast radio burst radio source, as well as many other radio sources. We've investigated at least 12 here, including the singing comet with phenomenal results. The biggest finding I've had, I'm finishing up now nearly a what'll be a 100-page course, that's double-spaced, paper titled Dyson Sphere Tesseract Structures Holographic Transmitters. This I'm presenting uh, as my graduate thesis on the latest degree I'll be in program I'm working on here in Western North Carolina, and we've got more than enough evidence. I've gone from saying proposed evidence to just proof positive of advanced civilizations that have massive structures, which are, of course, well known as Dyson spheres. Uh, We see signs of tesseract-like structures and holographic transmitters. I have hundreds and hundreds of images from multiple sources now. We're really excited. And so if you want copies of the finished product, be sure and reach out to me. And if you know anybody who'd like to get involved on the, I believe, finding of the century, have them reach out to us here at GS Radio at Frontier.com. We need as many eyes and minds on this topic as possible. It's a really exciting time, and what a subject. And, of course, our good friend Bob Hoy, editor and chief investment strategist at Charts and Markets, rejoins the show with his must-hear commentary. We discuss the Fed Fund's futures, and we also discuss the dollar, where he's convinced it's technically strong, um, but currently the precious metals look like they put in a good solid bottom. We also turn the discussion to Bitcoin and just the need for having, you know, crypto wallets, crypto and and of course the blockchain, you know, security is such a big issue. And we want folks to get involved, even in a small way, spend just five or ten dollars, 
get started. Shoot, contact me if you don't have any. I'll give you some free cryptos if you'll just set up a wallet just to get started. And we need to be hyper-connected without those global intermediaries, their fingers in our business. This is our money. This is our wealth. These are our lives, and it's our sovereignty. It's time to take it back. Just like precious metals, cryptos, they're the digital precious metals. So if you want to talk more about this or you want to just set up a wallet, just ask me. I'll gladly send you over something just to get you started. And Robert Ian wraps up the show with another must-hear report. So if you get nothing else out of this, at least you've got Robert Ian. The Q&A hotline, 641-715-3900, followed by extension number 514049. Please jot this down on a... Uh, Posted pad. You can delete, re record as many times as you like. 641 715 3900, extension 514049. Goldseek.com radio begins now with a market weather recap. Partly sunny skies appeared over the precious metal sector this week as investors picked up discounted gold and silver on positive data Friday that U.S. created many more jobs and expected about 50,000 at least at 263,000 new in April. That knocked the unemployment rate down to a 50-year low. That's great news for virtually every area of our economy. By the closing bell on Friday, the precious metals finished off just $7.50 at 1281 and silver at break even around 1408, but the precious metals shares were off about $4, 5% at 69. Black gold also fell slightly, about a buck and a half down to 62. It's still, again, $20 off its nadir. Palladium was off, though, 89 at 13.58, and platinum gave back about 30 at 8.74. Well, the top story in the precious metals sector this week global demand for gold. A thousand metric tons. That's two million ounces. Up 7% above last year's number. That according to the World Gold Council. Global investors added 40 metric tons to the gold-backed exchange-traded funds. That's 50% better than the same period last year. And net purchases by central banks hit a six-year high. Oh, yes, the purveyors of cheap fiat money, they know a good bargain when they see one. They're buying hand over fist. Hint, hint, any smart investors in the room? Emerging market demand for gold-related investments in jewelry is a strong sign here for global growth. That according to State Street Global Advisors. They think that investors are by far underestimating Risk, And I couldn't agree with them more. You need that precious metals parachute, that life preserver. Meanwhile, gold rebounded sharply from the lowest close in some time on the heels of remarks from the Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, who really let down some investors. They were looking for a hint of rate cuts. The Federal Reserve really said they'd hold the line on the benchmark overnight lending rate. But frankly, the Fed funds futures tell a much different story. And I'll 
put my money where the smart money is betting. They're expecting a rate cut as soon as December of this year. And our current president said that he wants the Fed to cut rates at least a full percentage point. I can't say that I argue with that point. In related news, on Friday, the Labor Department reported the U.S. jobs engine continues to plow forward like it's a diesel engine, adding 263,000 new jobs as unemployment rate plunged to 3.6%. That's the lowest in 50 years. Non-farm payrolls growth topped economist expectations of 190,000. And the sectors leading the charge, professional and business services, 76,000 new positions. Construction picked up 33,000, a quarter million of the past year. Healthcare added 27,000, 404,000 over the past 12 months. Financial positions picked up 12,000, 111,000 in the last year. Bottom line, precious metals. Well, we're stuck in a bit of a limbo here. This isn't really a favorable time of the year, and we're not really that close to the holiday season just yet. So you might say the doldrums, but for the time being, things look relatively steady. We'll have to keep an eye on how investors' insatiable appetite for U.S. shares continues to play out. Moving on to the Wall Street Report. Sunny skies across the horizon over the New York Stock Exchange as investors pushed the NASDAQ to a new all-time record high and weekly close on better-than-expected domestic economic numbers and a Goldilocks economy where conditions are simply just not too hot or too cold. They're just right. By Friday's closing bell on Wall Street, the Dow was near break-even at 26 543, while the S&P 500 picked up 6 at 29.45, just shy of that 3,000 point. And the NASDAQ added 18 points at 81.64. Elsewhere, turning to shares in the news, Jim Cramer is watching Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, who continues to buy one of our alpha stock newsletter favorites, as my subscribers know, Amazon.com. I'm telling you, this guy needs to fess up He has to be reading my Alpha Stocks newsletter report. He's also interested in Tesla, where Elon Musk is now planning on buying over 102,000 of their own shares at around 25 million. U.S. shares, bottom line. The USA Today Greed to Fear Index is just, again, kind of giving us a neutral uh, sine wave-like pattern, so not too much of a signal here. We're pretty overextended, but... Markets have a mind of their own. Let's not argue with success. Coming up after the break, all the interviews and much more on Gold Sea. The blockchain revolution is transforming the global arena, disrupting every industry in its path. Goldseek.com is excited to introduce an off-the-chain opportunity in digital gold and silver from our friends at Atmex and Sprott.com. One Gold holds physical gold and silver medals at the Royal Canadian Mint, the first online marketplace to offer secure and convenient buying, selling, and redemption of digital precious metals. One Gold uses Vault Chain, a secure, immutable blockchain ledger developed by Tradewind markets, the leading innovator in digital precious metals distributed ledger and blockchain technology. 
vault chain. Gold and silver are 100% redeemable through one gold. For physical precious metals delivered to customers' doors in any size at competitive prices and low transaction storage costs. As a special offer and for a limited time only, One Gold is offering gold and silver at spot price with no additional premiums. OneGold.com is secure and accessible 24-7 on any device, offering convenient purchases and sales of precious metals. Easy recurring transactions make passive saving and gold dollar cost averaging as easy as a single mouse click. Vault Chain offers the best tier pricing on AppMex products, setting the industry standard as a fully backed physical asset with easy redemption in coins, rounds, or bars, offering clients peace of mind and full transparency. Don't get left behind. Remember to bookmark OneGold.com for the safest and most convenient digital precious metals today. Remember, OneGold. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. Good morning, Bob. Hoy, how are you, sir? Fine, thank you. I'm just slaving away here. Work, 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 work. But what else is there to do? I work because I enjoy it. But I tell my friends that at my age, I can no longer do the sports I used to do, which was downhill skiing, whitewater kayaking, mountain biking, and track time with old cars. So the only sport I have left now is writing. I really enjoyed downhill skiing. I enjoyed water skiing. I used to go sailing with family. We were told to beware the stink boat navy. We called them gin palaces. We didn't have too many yachts on the lake where we, yeah, where we used to sail. But I also enjoyed deep sea uh, fishing with my uncle David, now deceased, unfortunately. He had the vitamin C was the, uh, moniker he gave his vessel there. Yeah, Lake Michigan, we used to catch coho salmon, king salmon. We caught and released all of them. They were enormous and literally he, cause he had the best radar he knew for the best were, we had a, a ton of fun. Never thought of fishing for salmon in the Great Lakes. 10, 15, 20 pounds, some of them. Keep in mind, those were the king, not the coho. If you fast forward to today, you have to you have to take a little more precautions, and we've got two little ones, a five-year-old and an almost 10-month-old now. So, so much going on. We, of course, the Fed meeting this week. There are some folks that are looking for a bit of a change in their forward guidance. If we look at the Fed Fund's futures, December in, of this year and January of next year, so about 12 months out, we see... Higher odds of a rate cut than staying firm where we are. Do you expect the Fed to commence a rate cutting cycle, get a little more dovish, and maybe even start QE operations within a year or so? I think the Fed's going to disappear. The Federal Reserve, the Bank of England was the senior central bank, and it was the same thing, too. You have a great boom, interest rates go up, uh, market rates of interest rate go up, and then they go down. And then the uh, senior central bank cuts the, uh, dis- used to be called the discount rate. Now they call it Fed funds or whatever. So at any rate, where we are now is that we've had a wonderful rebound in the financial markets out of a very nasty hit in the fall. You recall that our view was that there could be a liquidity problem discovered in the fall. And it could clear by as late as Christmas, which it did do. Now, it's interesting, Chris, because December 26th, it was, we put out a piece, and it had very oversold, well, actually downside capitulations in 
the S&P, and in for crude, for crude oil. Uh, they were both failing together. So the, um, then we looked for a rebound, and that would include uh, improving base metal prices, improving crude oil prices, um, and positive action in the yield curve and credit spreads, and probably into March or April, which we have had. So now what we want to do is look for technical excesses on some of these items, which we are getting. Uh, the uh, base metals had a nice rally, but they've been going sideways for a while. Crude oil, uh, we were looking a few weeks ago for maybe a high towards the end of April, and it looks like we've got a top in. It became quite overbought and, and a popular trade. So we're getting corrections now, and but what we want to look at, Chris, is not so much what the Fed is going to be doing because it's going to be the tail. It's going to be the tail on the dog. It'll 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 get beat up by the market. So the probability is that we play the seasonals, and when you've read financial history like I have, and you realize that there are reliable seasonal moves in the stock market going all the way back to 1700, then that impresses you. So then, in more recently, what we've done, more recently, the last 25 years, we've developed some very sophisticated technical measures that have been reliable. So this is where, when you got a disaster in December, you can look at the oversold and say, okay, it's going to rally. Now, how far is it going to rally? Well, maybe out somewhere between around April, maybe June. And then you look at the seasonals and you think, you know, that after mid-year, you can get a turn to uh, widening credit spreads if they've been narrowing in a speculative fashion, which they have been. And then on industrial commodities, you can take a look at those, and gee, you've got a often a nice seasonal low for lumber in October. You can have a seasonal low for copper in November, December, and you can have a seasonal low for crude oil in December, January. So then, what we're watching for in this window here is for some overbots, and we're getting them. And then we're now putting out cautionary remarks on what could be happening after mid-year. We're watching the U.S. stock market in clear melt-up mode, with the NASDAQ slicing through 8,000 as though it wasn't there, over 60% above our year 2000.com peak. I'd like your thoughts on whether or not you think this is sustainable, you know, could we be headed to 10,000 NASDAQ, 40,000? By the way, you might recall that interesting book by Cadillac back around the year um, 1999, I think it was, where he was calling for 40,000 Dow Jones as the Dow collapsed, yeah, after the year 2000 bust. December that year, it may have been him or it may have been somebody else who was calling for 35,000, and they were just using the compounding feature. And I had a piece published in Canada's Financial Post, which is the equivalent of the Wall Street Journal. 
outlining that this was quite improbable, that it looked like uh, a, a bubble, and it was a bubble. And that one, in January of 2000, we sat down and counted out the months on the yield curve and noted that probably March of 2000 would be the probable high, you know, plus or minus a month. And you had the hit and then the uh, recovery out to September, and then it all rolled over and crashed in the fall. So this is what we have now. The first quarter, the rebound in the first quarter was absolutely outstanding, fabulous. And But you then have uh, stocks like the S&P relative to OGDP or relative to wages. Uh, it's high, higher than at the peak on by this these measures then in 2007 and slightly higher than reached in uh, in 2000 so the stock market is very expensive uh, we've we're seeing lots of confidence um, we're seeing uh, well part of our upside exhaustions are based upon a momentum factor uh, and time factor. The other set of other system we use technically gives at bottom sequential buys, which we had in December, and then at tops it gives sequential sells, and this is based upon a pattern. So we've got <laughs> we've got momentum readings that you find at at peaks, and we have pattern readings that you find at peaks. So the only question is. How does it roll over? Uh, and when does it roll over? And the, our guess is that probably the big excitement is now and the uh, markets could correct and churn through mid-year and then in the fall once again discover that there's uh, no bids around and you could have uh, a pretty good uh, well, liquidity problem. So our advice to our subscribers has been the markets are offering another chance to raise some liquidity, and uh, we would be doing that. The um, the decline, uh, the net, you know, the uh, central bank and policymakers have invested a whole lot of their reputation and a whole lot of uh, taxpayers' money on all of this, as you mentioned, quantitative easing. And uh, doubtless that with a setback in the financial markets, they would try it again. But, you know, they did quantitative easing in 1929. Uh, the New York Fed uh, went into the markets during the crash and bought bonds. It exceeded its authority by a factor of six times, and it it didn't fix the crash. And this was the point. The it's only later in the 1960s when the establishment started to say that the Fed made a mistake and was tight in 1929. No, the the market uh, the liquidity disappeared so fast that the attempts by the Fed to inject liquidity were overwhelmed and this is what you've had of course in every sharp um, bear market 
uh, it overwhelms the Fed's dedication to push markets up. So, I mean, it's a simple theory. Uh, the Fed provides the uh, credit to the market, and the theory is that credit pushes up prices. Uh-uh. Prices are put up by speculators, and then they leverage themselves against rising prices, and prices come down, and margin clerks sell them out. So this is why you do have a business cycle and a credit cycle. Because, you know, Chris, the, Fed, the, the boys backing the Federal Reserve back in the early 1900s, they knew that financial setbacks preceded recessions. And they invented this theory that with the Federal Reserve as a lender of last resort, there wouldn't be financial setbacks. And with no financial setbacks, there'd be no recessions. And the Fed opened its doors for manipulations in January 1914. And there's been 18 recessions since. So the theory is not working. And... Uh, but it's going to take an awful lot of, of quite a while before the whole financial system begins to understand that you can't have a body of a committee arbitrarily deciding what it's going to do to the financial markets. And uh, so I think the next bear market, which always follows excessive speculation, and speculation is becoming excessive, the next bear market will probably reduce the regard for central banking hugely. I think the public, as part of this popular uprising going on, will uh, criticize the Federal Reserve severely. Uh, I'd like to lay out a competing viewpoint on U.S. equities. Just last week, if we look at the manufacturing numbers, we had blowout figures. But you can't really argue with the numbers. Plus, we've got unemployment at 50-year lows. We haven't seen anything like that. Is it not possible that we have perhaps the most pro-business, nationalistic person in the White House since 1980, since Ronald Reagan? Now you have a, let's call it a popular uprising that has Trump as its executive, and he really is uh, attempting to reduce the influence and size of government. Uh, it's uh, certainly uh, Im improved the economy, but and you've had previously where policies in the United States had chased corporate money out of the U.S. and into Europe or wherever, and then with the reformation at uh, early stages by Trump, um, the money's coming back home. But from what I read, a good portion of that money, <laughs> of corporate money, is borrowing uh, money, additional money, at low interest rates and buying the stock market at very high valuations on stock buybacks. That game is still going on. So where you are correct in saying that the economy is very good, it is very good. But that's what you typically have at the end of a long expansion. Things get very good. And then uh, one of the telltales on change 
has been that the yield curve uh, gets inverted, whereby short rates become higher than longer rates. And for a while there, the curve was inverted out to the 10-year. And that is always a sign that there's a tremendous demand for short-term funds, uh, mainly for speculative purposes. So in curve inverted, uh, says we're near the end of the cycle. And uh, the other one is that the credit spreads have narrowed very nicely. And there's a seasonal thing in credit spreads where you can have uh, very nice narrowing going on into June. And if it becomes speculative and it, it looks like it's becoming quite earnest anyways, that you can get a reversal then after after mid-year. So in answer to your question, yeah, I agree. It is wonderful. And uh, all of our research has been to measure wonderful um, and also to have a handle on when wonderful is likely to end. And we've been very good at it for a very long time. And uh, this wonderful is maxing out. And it's maxing out at a time when we thought it could. So all we do now is note that the excesses and watch and see what happens after mid-year. This is what we did last year as well. Um, and then you had 20% sell-off in the S&P, which we thought was possible. And you had a collapse of very big speculative stocks. Uh, some things were off 40 45%. So it was a very good trade. And then, uh, as we've already mentioned, uh, very oversold at Christmas time. And now <laughs> over overbought. So that's what this volatile market is about, going from very oversold, which are measurable, to very overbought, which are also measurable. So when we use two systems to determine that, as I mentioned, one is an upside exhaustion, which is based upon momentum, and the other is a sequential sell, which is based upon a pattern. So you have, we have kind of like two, two tools to help us and our subscribers out. So, look at the the buybacks record during much of the advance in U.S. equities. That's curtailed a touch, you know, with some higher rates. But now, with Fed officials talking about, as we mentioned, lower rates as soon as a year or so from now, that will make debt uh, issuance far less expensive and more appealing. You know, stock buybacks could come back into vogue. Plus, we also have the opportunity for um, these tariffs to continue benefiting, albeit I don't really agree with the tariffs for the most part, could at least continue to benefit our manufacturing sector, which could bode well domestically increasing the attractiveness of U.S. shares to investors. The one thing you said was that short-dated interest rates are going to go down that the Fed is uh, no longer uh, going to be increasing rates. Now, let's go back to September 2007. And uh, the mm, credit markets had changed a little. Uh, stock prices were high. 
And indeed, there was one last rally that took the S&P up uh, to the middle of, of uh, that October. Now, uh, the top pundits in Wall Street were saying that the, it would be all right because the Fed was going to lower interest rates. So I wrote a piece, you know, just a one-pager, pointing out that throughout all of commercial history, short-dated interest rates go up in the boom. So where the street then was fretting about rising interest rates, they took the belief that short rates declining would keep the boom going. And no, so long as short rates are going up, it confirms the boom. And when short rates go down, it says the boom is over. Uh, so to use the probability that the Fed is going to lower rates to remain long, it's missing the big point. The interest rates go down. And the faster the interest rates go down, uh, the worse the bear market. Uh, we also did that in 2000 as well. Cause our, but, you know, on this one, uh, there's been, I not haven't seen it yet, but probably will soon where we can see some big Wall Street pundits saying everything's going to be okay because the Fed's going to lower interest rates. And that is the one thing that we would, I would make a note on and put that on my, uh, flag it as, as an important quote. Now, in Europe, the, or England, the, uh, London interbank rate, LIBOR, the three months, it peaked in December. And it's slowly declining since. Uh, the in U.S. the six-month bill rate uh, set its high a few months ago, and while not going up, it's not really broken down. It's not really declining yet. So then also the credit spreads, the difference between high-grade and low-grade bonds. Uh, that's still narrowing, um, but we watch that one. Typically on a turn, you'll have the reversal to widening spreads and a breakout that says, hey, maybe the trend is changing. But in 2007, what was critical was the second breakout to widening. And also last summer, you had the first breakout to widening in August. And then the second breakout to widening really was right at the end of the game in, in early October. So uh, at the moment, no breakout in widening credit spreads, but we're watching for it. Um, uh, I think that for the next month or so, the stock market won't be helped by crude oil, which will probably correct. And you're not going to get any support from industrial commodities such as base metals. So... Uh, we're staying with our point, Chris, is that it was likely to rally uh, into uh, somewhere between March and mid-year. And then after mid-year, the usual seasonal changes. Now, guess what? You started talking about that the Fed would was looking like it would be lowering rates and this would be a good thing. And I'm pointing out that throughout all of commercial history, interest rates going Short rates going up in a boom confirms the boom is on, and when they turn down, it's a watch out signal. So, back to your 2007 that scenario, there are some similarities. We do have bubbles 
I don't think most of housing, at least as a as a nation, we're not nearly as frothy because we didn't have quite as much access to liquidity. But as Peter Schiff pointed out last week on the show, we have one of the greatest commercial real estate bubbles, perhaps, in history. How does that factor into your economic forecast? On their major financial bubbles, going back to the first one, the South Sea bubble in 1720, the prosperity was wonderful, and people were bidding up uh, property, residential houses, and uh, getting uh, coaches and teams of four and liveried servants, the whole thing. So that's certainly part of the game. Um, the, uh, As we know in Vancouver, real estate was going straight up residential. So, yes, the you get two kinds of great booms. One is where the action has been mainly in commodities, and that last high was in 2008 with crude oil up to 147, and you did have rising uh, property prices as well. And then you get the, uh, the boom that's more financial than otherwise, such as um, recently, or this one actually boom has a lot in common with the 1929 bubble. And the 1929 bubble had a lot in common with the 1873 bubble, and that one replicated the, the great bubble of 1825. So this has been the sixth great financial bubble, and it appears to be a classic one, which means that real estate got bid up with the play as well. Real estate in Vancouver, which was the wild, one of the wildest places in the world, has been declining for a year, and then I just wrote out a quote from uh, in the U.S. with the Hamptons, where uh, the biggest inventory of... Uh, properties for sale in a number of years, and that sales are declining sharply. So uh, things are afoot here. Let's, let's put it this way. There, there are some warnings showing, Chris, that the boom is beginning to lose energy, and it certainly became high enough to become vulnerable to the usual changes in the credit markets. And the usual changes in the credit markets haven't happened yet, except the, well, the one I mentioned was that the LIBOR rate has been declining since December and has actually broken down, which is a warning. And But we haven't seen like the T-bill rate and the six-month, or the three-month and the six-month in the U.S. haven't declined either. So, but we're watching for that. The uh, bubbles are fascinating. Uh, they're most compelling when they're at their most dangerous. And they, this one now is, is really quite compelling. Uh, there's been some fantastic stocks. But we'll watch things, Chris, over the next few months. And uh, and the, at least we know the things to watch for change. And that would be a further weakness in crude oil further weakness in base metal prices, a change in the yield curve. Now, oh, right, I'm glad I mentioned that. We have a chart uh, with the S&P and the yield curve, the 2s to 20s. 
and it has now um, the twos to twenties have now broken down similar to in 2007 and similar to in 2000 and we've been waiting for this this didn't show up last summer I thought maybe it could but then last summer the view was that well you can have the curve just change to steepening and it would be part of a liquidity problem anyways that it we argued that it didn't have to actually invert but this time you now have had it invert and now you've had it break down so um and you got this negative divergence against the stock market so this this one was also reliable for us in 2007 and in 2000 and so uh yeah I wandered into it <laughs> and then remembered our chart that we sent out last week uh on this specific breakdown in the yield curve so chris financial markets have been wonderful but the underlying parts of the market which we call our friends of the bull market uh they've been friendly but some of them are changing a bit such that maybe they ain't friendly so much anymore so but Again, we've got the tools and we'll be watching for change. That's an interesting segue into ain't friendly anymore. Financial security. 10, 15 years ago, I don't think anyone was terribly concerned about the safety of their brokerage accounts, their online banking accounts. We're interconnected in a way as never before. And I can tell you that our financial institutions are weary because they're under constant assault online. And then my bank accounts were hacked in the past year or so. It didn't really cause me terrible financial distress because the financial institution took care of the situation. I maybe lost $100. But where it caused problems was they froze the account for a week. The landlord doesn't accept cash. He only accepts checks. Now, this is just one simplistic example of the need for greater security. So enter cryptos, the crypto world. And to my knowledge, not a single Bitcoin account, not an online account, not a paper wallet, but a hard cryptographic wallet has been hacked. That's 10 years. And get this, thousands of brokerage and bank accounts are hacked. So this is the future. We haven't worked out all the issues. There are many challenges ahead for developers and founders to work out. I would feel much safer having, you know, a safe cryptographic wallet than in a, in a bank account. They put out, uh, the old saying is they offer umbrellas in good weather, and the moment it starts to rain, they call back the umbrellas. And then also the von Mises with the Austrian School of Economics, which are more practical than most economic schools. Uh, one of the vivid things that Mises outlined was that at the end of a boom, you didn't have to have the bankers call in the loans to start the contraction. All you have to have happen is they get a little nervous and stop making them as aggressively. But actually, there's some more on top that to it than that. It's 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 price action. 
that uh, you watch, and it'll give the the turn down, and then then of course banks get uh, scared and conservative and start looking to their own balance sheet and stop making the loans. And I say they don't have to call them for a contraction. All they got to do is get a little worried and stop being as aggressive in lending them. And of course, at the same time, when you get the first hit in the stock market, then the power shifts from the Federal Reserve System. Uh, It shifts to margin clerks at the brokerage firms and their equivalent at uh, other lending agencies. So uh, it's it's ancient, and uh, but uh, on every if if central banking was all powerful, there would be no recessions. And of course, that was the theory behind the formation of the Federal Reserve back in the early 1900s. And uh, there's been many recessions since. So. Uh, the th- the theories about central banking uh, are not working, and yet it's one of those things where the whole of the Wall Street community really will not admit. It gives elbow room to the central bankers like you wouldn't believe, such that uh, they uh, take credit for the boom because they're providing the prosperity and you look back on a Harvard economist like Greg Mancu, who in December 2007, I read it, I reread it recently, came out with a piece saying, no need to worry, nothing can go wrong, because the Fed has a dream team of economists. He did use the term dream team. And they were there uh, to lower interest rates <laughs> and prevent the contraction. And the uh, the, the economy did uh, begin the recession in that December 2007. So he was dead wrong. Uh, but then you get the other shift, Chris, which is that they first of all say that nothing can go wrong. Then it goes wrong. And within 18 months, they then say, oh, well, we prevented the uh, the disaster, the liquidity problem from running forever. So the, I mean, it's just straight chicanery uh, to boast that because of your skills, nothing can go wrong. And then it goes wrong. And then they boast that they would have gone wrong forever if they hadn't moved. And yet, it is never really clinically criticized at higher levels. Sure, market letter writers like me can do it, but it's not somebody at the uh, at any of the big brokerage or big bank firms doing it. So, uh, and it will continue. Uh, so, right now, the street is celebrating that nothing can go wrong because the Fed's going to lower interest rates, and I'm. I'm welcome it. Let them do it. But the transition uh, is always fascinating, and we have the tools to uh, watch for the transition. And Chris, you'll know. I'll give you the the heads up when when our indicators come in. So.
We are all ears for that announcement. I shift the discussion into the realm of the scientific. I do recall you mentioning that your background includes the geological sciences. Oh, yeah. I take a degree in geophysics. And you also then would be familiar with SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence? Oh, yeah. They've been searching for signals. Well, the founder of SETI and the lead astronomer, his name is Seth Shaustat, and he will be guest on this week's big show. SETI. Okay, this is a world-renowned institute. They've been around for decades now, regularly on all the major media outlets. We've been in correspondence for several months. I was able to present to him an interesting finding. As you know, we've been finding what we believe is some type of communications in text and audio and perhaps voice and perhaps music from off-world today. We won't get on this long, but we're making a big announcement and on this week's show that one of our associates here sent us back what we believe to be evidence of a structure in deep space. This is from an official source. The structure appears to contain several. I've only sent you one tiny portion of it. Different Dyson spheres that appear to operate a transmitter of some sort. And there is not only lighting, structures, mechanisms, but appears to be a neutron star and perhaps, maybe, we're not sure yet, a magnetar. Your interview will air, as I mentioned, with Dr. Seth Shaustek. There's 200 billion stars in our Milky Way, and on average, the typical star hosts at least one planet. And now, they've just recently found out with deep space imaging that there's at least 200 or 150 to 200 billion galaxies times 200 billion planets per galaxy. 200 billion squared. That's a lot of potential. Oh yeah, you're talking probabilities. There's bound to be other life forms out there, but so far away that it boggles the mind. Astronomy and have kept up to date on climate and changes and ice ages and things. Blown away by some of the evidence that we're we're starting to uncover here. And it's not just us. There's a huge field of research now that's blossoming. You might find it interesting. I'm mostly finished with the framework of what looks like about a hundred page concept paper in PhD dissertation form, APA formatting, on this topic. I'm looking forward to presenting these results as part of a, a graduate program I'm participating in at Western North Carolina up here. As we wrap up, would you like to tell people more about institutional advisors? Google Bob Hoy, B-O-B-H-O-Y-E, and it comes up. Or you can do www.bobhoy.com, and it comes up, and we've got a track record that we enjoy sharing with anybody. Looking forward to more commentary in 2019. Very good, Chris. Anytime. Always enjoy. The blockchain revolution is transforming the global arena, disrupting every industry in its path. Goldseek.com is excited to introduce an off-the-chain opportunity in digital gold and silver from our friends at Atmex and Sprott.com. One Gold holds physical gold and silver medals at the Royal Canadian Mint, the first online marketplace to offer secure and convenient buying, selling, and redemption of digital precious metals. One Gold uses Vault Chain, a secure, immutable blockchain ledger developed by Tradewind 
and Markets, the leading innovator in digital precious metals distributed ledger and blockchain technology. Vault Chain. Gold and silver are 100% redeemable through one gold. For physical precious metals, delivered to customers' doors in any size at competitive prices and low transaction storage costs. As a special offer and for a limited time only, one gold is offering gold and silver at spot price with no additional premiums. OneGold.com is secure and accessible 24-7 on any device, offering convenient purchases and sales of precious metals. Easy recurring transactions make passive saving and gold dollar cost averaging as easy as a single mouse click. Vault Chain offers the best tier pricing on AppMex products, setting the industry standard as a fully backed physical asset with easy redemption in coins, rounds, or bars, offering clients peace of mind and full transparency. Don't get left behind. Remember to bookmark OneGold.com for the safest and most convenient digital precious metals today. Remember OneGold. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. The blockchain revolution is transforming the global arena, disrupting every industry in its path. Goldseek.com is excited to introduce an off-the-chain opportunity in digital gold and silver from our friends at Atmex and Sprott.com. One Gold holds physical gold and silver medals at the Royal Canadian Mint, the first online marketplace to offer secure and convenient buying, selling, and redemption of digital precious metals. One Gold uses Vault Chain, a secure immutable blockchain ledger developed by Tradewind markets the leading innovator in digital precious metals distributed ledger and blockchain technology vault chain gold and silver are 100 redeemable through one gold for physical precious metals delivered to customers doors in any size at competitive prices and low transaction storage costs as a special offer and for a limited time only one gold is offering gold and silver at spot price with no additional premiums one gold.com is secure and accessible 24 7 on any device offering convenient purchases and sales of precious metals. Easy recurring transactions make passive saving and gold dollar cost averaging as easy as a single mouse click. Vault Chain offers the best tier pricing on AppMex products, setting the industry standard as a fully backed physical asset with easy redemption in coins, rounds, or bars, offering clients peace of mind and full transparency. Don't get left behind. Remember to bookmark OneGold.com for the safest and most convenient digital precious metals today. Remember OneGold. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. It's a big pleasure to welcome the head of SETI, senior astronomer and director of the Center for SETI Research, Seth Schaustack, on his debut appearance here with us today to discuss interesting findings as well as his website where he has a one-hour program interviewing some really top folks in several interesting fields. Welcome, sir. Thanks a lot, Chris. Great to have you. And you know, interesting topics you cover. Are humans a machine or will our descendants become or be, you know, AI or or machines? A topic that wouldn't even make the mainstream, would it, five or ten years ago? But now it seems more plausible. Your thoughts, please. I think it it is not only plausible, but it's kind of popular these days. I talk to people all the time who are a little concerned, not just with the machines taking their jobs, and that's somewhat predictable. We can 
certainly, uh, you know, guess which jobs will be taken first and, you know, uh, which jobs will, will be taken last. But uh, the idea that actually we're inventing our successors is hardly radical anymore. And there's quite a, quite a few people who, who would subscribe to that idea, as uncomfortable as it may be. Well, let's just jump right to the topic du jour, and that is your forte. Is there life in the universe? And you are the author of several must-read tomes on the topic, and one of them is Life in the Universe. I believe that you uh, co-authored that, if I recall. I'd really like your thoughts on what direction are we headed here? Are, are we closer than we were a decade or two ago? Well, in some sense, we don't know if we're closer or not. So it's, uh, it's kind of hard to say, well, I mean, are you close? I mean, either you've done it or you haven't done it. It's like saying, okay, uh, you've been uh, shoveling the sand around this South Pacific uh, island for a number of years now, and you haven't discovered any buried treasure. Are you close? Well, I mean, you don't know whether you're close. In fact, you don't even know if there's any treasure to be found. So, uh, you know, in that sense, you can't answer the question. But I think that it isn't unfair or even illogical to say that we might be closer, simply because there are plans to send rockets, for example, to places in our solar system that we haven't really visited looking for life, like some of the moons of Jupiter or Saturn, where there might indeed very well be life, uh, microscopic life, but nonetheless biology. So in that sense, I think we're closer to finding you know, cosmic company right here in our own solar system. As far as finding intelligent life, I think that SETI might be getting closer in the sense that the equipment is getting faster so that the search is speeding up or trading in that shovel for, uh, you know, uh, uh, 10 or 100 shovels, so that may help. You may have seen the uh, Huygens spacecraft landing right there on the, I believe it's a moon of Saturn, of course, Titan, probably the largest moon, where they believe they've seen some pools of water. And I just, I have the image right here on my desktop. Uh, so that, I think, kind of keeping with your theme of sending probes uh, right here in our community. In our solar system is a fantastic idea. There's so much to see. We also had that cat comet two days ago from the European Space Agency. Those images, breathtaking, and the singing comet a couple of years ago. So we haven't even scratched the surface, have we, within our own neighborhood? Well, that's what it takes. You have to scratch the surface. Now, in the case of Titan, which, by the way, it only looks larger because it has a big atmosphere, but it's the second largest, so that's good enough. Now, yes, the Huygens probe did plop down onto the surface of, of Titan, and it found, uh, you know, and there are liquid lakes here. It didn't land in one. It was prepared to land in one, but didn't. It actually landed on a sort of a, a smooth area. Well, semi-smooth area. There were a lot of rocks, but these rocks are probably big chunks of ice, water ice. And there are liquid lakes there, but, of course, given the temperature at uh, Saturn, at the Saturnian system, and temperatures being like minus 250 degrees, it's, these lakes are not filled with liquid water. They're filled with le liquid methane and ethane. So uh, they're filled with liquid natural gas, which you may use. So let's shift back then to, um, you know, extraterrestrial life. And I know that a big focus of your team and many folks who have, um, you might say, worked with you and worked closely with SETI is radio signals. And we're also fascinated by radio signals. And, of course, radio telescopes have brought us so much. Can you give us an idea of where we are? Of course, we, we've also corresponded about fast radio bursts. And we also see interesting signals from black holes and pulsars, magnetars, power Powerful signals. I'd like your thoughts. Well, my thoughts are they're interesting. I mean, unless you want to, you know, say something specific about them, there's no doubt that we learn a lot about the universe and how it works by studying the radio emission that uh, various objects put out. 
And, uh, you know, you might think, oh, well, they're putting out radio. There must be some sort of uh, intelligence involved to study galaxies a lot. And they put out a lot of radio waves, as does the sun, as does Jupiter, as do quasars, pulsars, all these things. Put out radio waves. If that's the result of natural processes, uh, just in the same way that you go out at night and you look at Sirius, which is up in the sky these days still, uh, and then, you know, you see a bright star, all that light coming toward you. Uh, that's put out by natural processes. But by studying that light, you can learn a lot about how stars are formed, what they're made of, how far away they are, and all sorts of other interesting stuff. And the same is true of radio waves. By studying radio waves, we learn an awful lot about the about the universe. And conceivably, you might learn something, and that's what we try and do here. You might pick up a signal that has characteristics that are not typical of natural processes, but are the result of a a deliberate transmission, and that would prove that there's uh, intelligence out there. Several of my buddies spend their lives studying pulsars, so they obviously think they're interesting, uh, because you have extreme conditions in the case of a pulsar. Pulsars are, the, you know, they're just dead stars. They were stars that were a little bit bigger than the sun. They ran out of juice, they ran out of fuel, they ran out of energy to keep shining the way they had been, so they collapse in on themselves, and typically a pulsar is, you know, about the size of uh, Manhattan Island in, in you know, diameter, it's uh, several miles, and uh, you know, the densities are very high because you've taken up this entire star, collapsed it down to that very small volume, so you have something that's, you know, I don't know, one, one teaspoonful would weigh more than the uh, Lithuanian uh, Navy. They're rotating rapidly, that's just conservation of angular momentum, that's high school physics, but they also uh, have hot spots on them and strong magnetic fields. They beep at you. They, they send radio waves. They send light waves into space that are often very regular. Now, of course, you know, pulsars eventually all slow down. So as a clock, they're good for a while, and then they're less good. But, um, yeah, they're, they're very regular. They're very interesting. And they tell you about uh, how matter behaves in very extreme environments. Very good. And if we could move on then to fast radio bursts, I'm, I know you're aware of the uh, 121102, one of the few repeating, if not the only repeating fast radio bursts. They think they have an idea in the general region. It's quite far away. We're talking extra galactic here. We're trying to process it and listen to it. Any thoughts on 121102, this repeating fast radio burst? Yeah, it's one of two that are known to repeat, and it's the first one uh, that was found to repeat. It's actually located about oh, between three and four billion light years away. That's a heck of a lot farther than the Crab Nebula, of course. And indeed, the reason that it was interesting is because it's one of, you know, a, a couple of dozen now fast radio bursts that have been discovered, but this one repeats. And that means that you can use, if you know it's going to happen again, you can use whatever telescope you want to look at it, you know, you don't have to luck out and have to be looking at it just as it does something. That's a tremendous advantage, and that allowed them to uh, use big, you know, uh, radio arrays like the, the very large array in New Mexico to zero in on exactly where this, this uh, burp, this radio burp from the cosmos was coming from, the small spot on the sky, then you can look at that spot on the sky with conventional telescopes, and that's how they found out it was coming from a rather small galaxy, uh, I, th I think it was like 3.8 billion light years away. But in any case, somewhere between 3 and 4 billion light years away. That's very, very far. That's way beyond the Milky Way. I mean, incredibly far beyond the Milky Way. And uh, what you get is just, it's like a slide whistle. You go, like that, but in about a tenth of a second. So, uh, you know, w what's causing it? Well, 
you have all these other radio bursts all over the sky, so whatever's causing it is some sort of very cataclysmic natural event. The first thought is always something colliding, because when you throw two neutron stars together, you throw two black holes together, you know, you, you release a lot of energy, and that might cause it, but not for a repeating fast radio burst. If it repeats, you can't have the black holes back up and say, all right, you guys go back into your neutral corners now and just collide again. I mean, they do it once, that's it. So whatever's causing FRB, you know, 121102 uh, or whatever it is, to to repeat, you know, it's not a collision. It's something else. And uh, the question is, what's the something else? And we still don't know. If we step outside the box for a moment and presume that the signal it's found to be possibly unnatural, would we then try to follow Carl Sagan's protocol that he put out there so many decades ago and look for symbols, text, potential audio? It's, it's kind of hard to understand how, you know, people broadcasting this stuff from that direction over there, four billion light years away, have communicated with those people over there you know, uh, at least another four billion light years away from them and telling them we are all going to do the same thing, right? It's like, I, I don't know, that would be like walking into downtown London tomorrow and finding that everybody is wearing the exact same outfit. Could it not also be like walking into downtown Manhattan or London or another major city and there are multiple, you know, apartments and buildings and cafes with Wi-Fi and all around me are all these signals. It's just a noisy area, but I can't pick up on it unless I have the right algorithm or equipment. Might be, you might say, noise, remnant or, you know, byproducts of civilizations long gone, long past, and we just haven't quite yet developed a way to perhaps to get down to the actual material itself. These things happen in a tenth of a second. You can't have a lot of information packed into a tenth of a second at the frequencies of these radio bursts, uh, where on the dial they occur. That's just information theory. It would be like saying, ah, I'm going to put all of the Beethoven sonatas into a tenth of a second worth of the audio. Well, you can't. It's, it's not because it's hard, it's because it violates simply how much information you can, you can get into a finite amount of time. This is just physics. What if there were a civilization who perhaps had a technology, you know, with access to, say, Dyson Sphere-like energy level, a level three, level four, you know, way out there beyond, you know, because we're kind of a young, I'm sure you'd agree, civilization, at least theoretically. Would it not be possible, at least, or not beyond the realm of speculation, that they might have a, a much more powerful transmission method than we're aware of or have even theorized? Today. You can always appeal to new physics and say, well, they're doing, and it involves physics I don't know about, and obviously I don't have any instruments I can measure this, because I don't have any instruments that can measure the 10th, 11th, and 12th dimensions here in my office, or anywhere else for that matter. So you can, you can speculate and say it could be, and nobody could say, you, you know, there's absolutely no way that could be. No, it, you know, I'm going to give you an idea that, you know, might be true, might not be true. But, you know, in science, that, that would never fly, because if you don't have a way to either prove it right or prove it wrong, then you're just, you know, pontificating, right? Uh, you know, we're obviously finding some rather spectacular things that uh, seem to have the appearance of text and other, you know, audio, which, of course, maintain their integrity over great distances and times, whereas that would degrade because of the way that space is, whether or not you would find perhaps texts and symbols and things. Might that be a way for ancient civilizations to have communicated? 
keep in mind that the signals picked up from FRBs are analog signals. If you see them as digital presentations, of course you will, because they're going to be, you know, put on the Internet and they'll be digitized and made into a, a JPEG image or some sort of image or just, you know, some sort of graph. But, but in fact, they're, they're picked up with, you know, basically analog receivers because they're very wide bandwidth uh, signals, right, or at least they cover a wide uh, band. They're, they're actually fairly narrow band signals, but they, they move in frequency very quickly. Just so happens that my background is dealing with really noisy audio. Actually, did identify several signals in the FRB twelve eleven oh two. So that's what kind of led to this line of reasoning, and why we're just so excited to have you here today. Is is there a holy grail here, sir, that we should be looking for? Well, I mean, what we look for are narrow band signals. Okay. Because narrow band is the indication of a transmitter. Now the FRBs go right right down the dial, which is kind of odd. I mean, that's, a transmitter would normally not do that unless it were broken or something. But what would happen is if it didn't do that, but was very far away, and then the frequency shift, you know, to lower frequencies with time, that just occurs because of you know ionized gas in galaxies and between galaxies. Ionized gas in the universe causes this. It's well known. And, uh, you know, you, you see it with other objects as well. I, I, I might suggest this. There, there are people in the 1960s when the pulsars were first detected in Cambridge, right? I think it was 1966, but thereabouts. Mid-1960s. And uh, these were very, very regular pulses. And, and, you know, people didn't know what they were because nothing else could produce these very regular things things appeared all over the sky. When they found two or three of them, there's just no way you can coordinate across the whole sky like that because of the time it takes to send messages to say, hey, we're coordinating, you know, a, a shout-out all across the cosmos. Can I propose a little hypothesis with you? What if, again, outside the box, thinking, back of the envelope, an advanced civilization, a level or two beyond ours here, there's 200 billion stars in our galaxy and in the typical galaxy, and there's about 200 billion galaxies. There's a lot of planets out there. So let's assume over the course of the last few billion years, one of these uh, civilizations that was maybe near a pulsar or something like, or in between a pulsar and another civilization, figured out a way to use the pulse to then and encode their message onto that pulse. Is that beyond the realm of um, possibility? No, there have been a number of papers published with that sort of idea where you modify, you know, the signals from an, a natural radio source, like a pulsar, or for that matter, even, a, you know, an active gal galactic nucleus. Uh, I remember reading several papers about that quite some time ago. It's an old idea. It's not impossible to do it than violate physics. Might do it. The question is, is that a better scheme than building a transmitter with a big reflector behind it? Or is the latter simpler? You don't have to get between, you know, the transmitter and the receiver, right? You don't need that uncomfortable alignment, which is going to limit your audience. You know, it may be a lot simpler just to do it that way. In my opinion, that's true. But, I mean, you could say, hey, look, is it possible that, you know, transatlantic aircraft could actually signal their progress by using a big shaving mirrors to reflect sunlight over to Heathrow or back to New York. Well, I mean, if you had big enough mirrors, maybe you could do it. But it turns out that there are far easier ways to do that. You can imagine all these sorts of things, unless you've got the data that show that it's true, then you have to say, okay, well, from a sort of a fundamental perspective, is this maybe the best way to do it? What advantages does it offer? And in the case of getting between a pulsar and your audience, you might say, well, what an advantage, the advantage it offers is that you don't have to have that giant 
transmitter. But on the other hand, the pulsar all over the dial. Keeping with the transatlantic trip, if you will, or transmission thesis, trying to build a transmitter uh, that would just use speed of light technology, which is all we have right now, obviously. But, I mean, it would seem to me an advanced civilization would recognize that's like taking, you know, a single-engine prop plane across the Atlantic. You know, we have entanglement. Einstein called spooky action at a distance, I'm sure our listeners are very familiar with, and it's really been proven quite well in the laboratory. And I'm just simply postulating, would it not be interesting that that civilization near the pulsar or what we think is a fast radio burst or perhaps a black hole, a singularity, a magnetar, something like that, had devised a method, very advanced, I know, to entangle Tangle their message upon a very powerful source. You know, I hear from a lot of people who say, well, you know, speed of light transmission by electromagnetic waves, which is to say, you know, light or radio, well, that's kind of slow. Well, can't argue with that. It is kind of slow. The next sentence is usually quantum entanglement is instantaneous. Wouldn't an advanced society take advantage of that? Quantum entanglement seems to exist. There's rather little doubt that it exists. But just talk to a physicist about this and they'll tell you. Quantum entanglement is a very interesting thing, but it doesn't solve this particular problem. And in fact, if you did have communication faster than the speed of light, you run into a problem, a very fundamental problem in physics called, uh, called causality. And now suddenly consequences occur before the actions. You know, that really messes up all of science. So uh, physicists are, you can send information faster than the speed of light because of this, this problem. But in any case, quantum entanglement does not. It's, it's something called Bell's theorem. You can look it up. Brilliant physicist, Irish physicist, I, I remember quite well. We can't thank you enough. I mean, what an honor it is to have Dr. Seth Schaustack here with us today. And the last very, very quick question for you. For those of us who believe we may are seeing some remnants of texts and things like that just from another ancient civilization, do you have any contacts for us, people who are maybe um, just think outside the box, colleagues, friends of yours? want to get it to the scientific community, I'm, I'm afraid what you have to do is publish the results and, and not, you know, just bring it to their attention because you know, it gets brought to their attention by someone every day. So just, just publish it. That's, people come to me and they say Einstein was wrong or they've got a new theory of gravity or they've explained, you know, I don't know, uh, the, the, the final theory of everything, seventh grade math usually. But, but you're not going to get too many people's attention in the science community unless you've published it in some sort of refereed journal, because otherwise, how do I know that I should spend my afternoon working on your suggestion as opposed to these three other suggestions that came in this week? You know, that sounds kind of cynical, and I'm sorry for that, because, you know, I, I hate people who are cynical to me, too. So I, I feel your pain on that, but that's, that's kind of the way science works. If, if somebody doesn't have enough data or, or a strong enough argument to get something published in a refereed journal... And then the scientists are thinking, well, this is just somebody's idea, and, you know, there's no way to evaluate whether it has any legs. It's my recommendation. It's a very good recommendation, and you're right. The empirical data really needs to be refereed by peer-reviewed correspondence. We've been through that process for decades. But the challenge that we're having today, it's so outside the box that the peer review process is actually working against us. But that's okay. These are legitimate results. I mean, it'll stand the test of time. Would you like to leave any contact information with the listeners? Anybody can get hold of me. Just go to the SETI Institute website or to Big Picture Science. Either one. Bye-bye. 
The blockchain revolution is transforming the global arena, disrupting every industry in its path. Goldseek.com is excited to introduce an off-the-chain opportunity in digital gold and silver from our friends at Atmex and Sprott.com. One Gold holds physical gold and silver medals at the Royal Canadian Mint, the first online marketplace to offer secure and convenient buying, selling, and redemption of digital precious metals. One Gold uses Vault Chain, a secure, immutable blockchain ledger developed by Tradewind Markets, the leading innovator in digital precious metals distributed ledger and blockchain technology. Vault Chain. Gold and silver are 100% redeemable through One Gold. For physical precious metals delivered to customers' doors in any size at competitive prices and low transaction storage costs. As a special offer and for a limited time only, One Gold is offering gold and silver at spot price with no additional premiums. OneGold.com is secure and accessible 24-7 on any device, offering convenient purchases and sales of precious metals. Easy recurring transactions make passive saving and gold dollar cost averaging as easy as a single mouse click. Vault Chain offers the best tier pricing on AppMex products, setting the industry standard as a fully backed physical asset with easy redemption in coins, rounds, or bars, offering clients peace of mind and full transparency. Don't get left behind. Remember to bookmark OneGold.com for the safest and most convenient digital precious metals today. Remember OneGold. Goldseek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. This is Robert Ian with Goldseek.com Radio. It's been ten and a half years since the financial collapse of 2008. One of the often overlooked aspects of this event is that it didn't just rob and redistribute the money and assets that people possessed. It robbed them of their time. I've discussed this topic in a variety of ways the past decade. Many people who were in their 50s and 60s when 2008 occurred were wiped out. Downsizing took on a new definition. When people did find work, it was often at salaries that were 20, 30, and 40% lower than their prior job. Many, after a year or two of unemployment, had spent down what little savings they had left. Their previous responsible debt levels and lifestyle were no longer sustainable in the aftermath of 2008. Those in their 20s, 30s, and 40s at the time of the 2008 collapse had lots of setbacks as well. But they still had some time in front of them to recover. But now they're older too, with less time ahead of themselves to work and recover should another financial crisis appear on the horizon, or more likely, appear out of nowhere, like a black swan whose wingspan suddenly blocks out the sunlight on some unsuspecting morning. It can happen again. The ever-expanding global debt burden is mortgaging and remortgaging everyone's future. Whether you have any significant debt or not, the fallout from another such financial crisis will directly impact you and your lifestyle because it will be directly impacting 
most everyone you know. The consequences will again be real. Most aren't aware unless they look, but many are still suffering and recovering from 2008. A friend of mine who purchased a condominium in early 2008 for $240,000 saw half that value vanish later that same year. They just sold it, finally, after a decade, for $170,000. After ten long years, they never even broke even, and instead ended up taking a $70,000 hard loss. Hard losses are painful. They can have negative effects on your lifestyle your ambition, your identity, your happiness, and yes, even your health. It was a very painful, molasses-like process for my friend. Most suffer in silence. The debt monster must be fed. Unfortunately, that monster is the fed. When the next crisis makes its unwelcome appearance, and houses, stocks, and other segments of the market correct to their fair market value, which will be decisively lower than it is now, people will once again lose their past production as savings and equity collapse, and will once again lose their future production as loans turn upside down and the negative balances get attached to their future effort and future earnings. Either way, you lose. Either way, you have just given up your last decade of savings or your next decade of production or both. Maybe It would be a good idea to have little or no debt. And maybe it would be a good idea to store the fruits of your labors in an asset or two that have no counterparty risk and a slim chance of ever going to zero. But where on earth would you find such an asset? Perhaps... It's only wishful thinking. And until next time, this is Robert Ian with ConquerChange.com. Thanks, Chris. Okay, Robert, thanks for another excellent installment. Well, that wraps up this week's GoldSeek.com radio episode. For two new big guests, be sure to check out next week's show. Until we talk to you again, have a great week. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice.